are again in Matthew chapter 6. Um, so if you could turn there and read with me, it'd be great. Um, we're also going to read a lot of other passages. So I'm going to have some of them on the screen. And, um, and I'm going to reference so much of the Bible this morning that I actually already posted on the realm a list of passages that are relevant to this sermon. So, if you have questions or if you want to read through and test my claims, I encourage you to do so. Um, if you're not on the realm, there's instructions in the worship guide um, to do so. So, um, page 811, if you don't have a Bible, on the Pew Bible, uh, we're going to read, starting in verse 5, starting in verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray. So this passage is a part of a uh, larger group of passages that sort of sets the behavior of those who seem pretty pious but actually are seeking man's praise against the action of those who are actually indeed seeking God. You see this starting in chapter uh, 6 verse 1. When Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then we have these uh, almost vignettes of uh, the public giver, right? And the public prayer and the public faster, right? So these three actions that the world kind of views as pretty... Uh, pious and honorable, um, Jesus says, look, you can, you can do these things in such a way that you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And what that usually looks like is public, visible acts of righteousness. Now, I want to talk very briefly about the structure of this passage because you have these three moments where we gaze upon the public generosity of a hypocrite against the private generosity of the faithful, and we gaze upon the public prayer life of the hypocrite against the backdrop of the, of the private prayer life of the faithful. And then we have, uh, uh, we will next week highlight the public fasting of the hypocrite against the backdrop of the private fasting of the faithful. Um, now, these things are interrupted 
uh, with what pretty generally is recognized as maybe the most important aside in the history of the world. Um, <laughs> that's an exaggeration, but maybe not. Um, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, interrupting these really clear moments that are intended to be lined up right next to each other, is a prolonged discourse on prayer. And right in the center of that discourse is the Lord's Prayer. One of the sweetest and most profound moments in the Gospels is right here in the middle. And... um, And we're going to deal with that whole section separately, right? So we have this really simple idea, which we've been dealing with for the last few weeks. Um, And then right after highlighting sort of the prayer of the faithful against the prayer of the the hypocrite, uh, Jesus turns and says, "Now, now we're, by the way, while we're talking about prayer, I want to talk to you about your prayer life, and how it should play out, not just in the negative, but in the positive, all right? And, and there's so much here that we can't just barrel through it. So I'm going to deal with this passage, um, and then the fasting passage, and we're going to round out this section with, with the broad uh, appeal to lay up your treasure in the next kingdom and not this kingdom, which summarizes all that Jesus has said to this point. And then we're going to stop and go back, and we're going to dwell slowly and carefully on Christ's words about prayer and on the Lord's Prayer especially. So, that's what's to come. Right here we have this appeal to pray in secret. Now I'm just going to go ahead and confess to you that the vast majority of this sermon is going to dwell on those first four words. And when you pray, when you pray, just like generosity and just like fasting, we learn immediately that prayer is a basic expectation of the faithful. Prayer is a basic expectation of the faithful, and it has been so since the outset of creation, and it will be so even into the kingdom when we are speaking directly with God. Prayer is a core attribute of faithful people. I'm going to really quickly read a verse in Hebrews 11. It occurred to me this week and this morning. Um, Check this out. If I can find it. It's in there somewhere. It's in the Bible. It's, uh, it's, it's, It's in the second half of the Bible, 1007, listen to this, without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists 
and that he rewards those who what? Seek him. He rewards those who seek him. Faith being the thing that pleases God. You want to look for a central theme in the scripture? Faith is going to be right there as a cornerstone of the message of scripture, which is God redeems those who set their faith in his righteousness, right? Faith being the core aspect of that of, of the of the work of God to regenerate hearts. Faith being a core aspect of the of the uh, regenerative work to to stand before God and please Him. The faith is summarized in this passage as as believing God exists and believing God rewards those who seek Him. And you should think prayer. So, I'm arguing here that prayer is a basic expectation. I'm going to start from the beginning of the scriptures and I'm just going to work through them. All right? You were created to pray. You were created to pray. Now, I'm getting this from the creation narrative and I just want to go ahead and define terms here. What is prayer? It does not, when I say you were created to pray, what I do not mean is you were created to say three formulaic sentences prior to eating your supper. All right? What does prayer mean in this context? I think the the first glimpse we get of of what prayer life of the faithful should look like is the creation narrative. When God sets man in the garden and He walks with man in the crisp breeze of the afternoon. God walks with His sons and daughters daily and speaks with them, and that's the pace of the created order. Man is sent to steward God's creation, and God doesn't just put him in the garden and leave. God places man in the garden, and He walks with him, and He talks with him. And the first major disruption after sin is that that relationship starts to have some distance, right? So, in the garden, God walked with Adam and Eve daily. Immediately after the fall, prayer doesn't stop, right? Prayer doesn't stop. Walking with God doesn't stop. In fact, the first chapter after the fall narrative is about Cain and Abel, the sons of of Adam and Eve, interacting with God, presenting sacrifices before God, speaking directly with God, right? So even immediately after the fall, men spoke with God regularly and directly. It was normative. It was fundamental to their nature. They were created to interact regularly with God. Now, as Adam's sons lose sight of the garden, as they pace further and further into the created order, and the distance between man and his violent heart is, 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 is broadened between God and his righteousness and man and his, his violence and his sin, you get this phrase, and then they began to call on God. You get this regular pace of 
prayer in the way that we experience it, um, disseminating among the sons and daughters of, of Adam. We have the calling of God in prayer and sacrifice. And what's interesting is from this moment in Genesis, and I'm looking at chapters 4, 5, and 6, from this moment in Genesis, as the world is cracking because sin is, is, is corrupting the behavior of all men, right? as the world is breaking, those who are characterized by walking with God, by talking with God and sacrificing to God and speaking with God in prayer, those who are characterized by that action are actually delivered from the harshest brokenness of the created order. I'm referring to Enoch, who walked with God for 300 years, and then the Lord took him up. Right? So he didn't encounter the pain and the suffering of the flood. He didn't encounter the, the destruction of the world. The Lord took him up. And then Noah, who walked with God, and who spoke with God, and who, who, who listened and was obedient to God, and who made sacrifices to God, was found favor with God and was delivered from the destruction of creation. So you have this paradigm already forming in the creation narrative that those who continued to walk with God, so to speak, in the breeze of the afternoon, have an intimate and redemptive relationship with Him. All right, you following me? Okay. And, and that doesn't stop there. That paradigm actually is, is, is in its seminal moment in the, in the creation era, but you see it play out all throughout the Bible. Every scene of Abraham's story hinges on moments of prayer. Test me on this. Genesis 12 through 21. Every scene of Abraham's story hinges on moments of prayer. And that's the first taste we get that the faithful, right? The faithful of the Old Testament, the ancient faithful, never stopped praying, right? Their lives were characterized by their discourse with God. So every scene of Abraham's story, Genesis 12 through 21, hinges on moments of prayer. Fast forward and we see Moses in Exodus has such an intimate relationship with God that it is described as him standing before God and speaking with him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. All right? You have these, these moments where God is ready to destroy his wicked people and start fresh, and, and, and Moses in this Christ-anticipating moment falls on his face and intercedes in prayer on behalf of the people. Moses is a praying man. Moses dies. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. And he's doing what God told him to do by leading the people into war with these wicked nations. And he prays and asks God to do impossible things. And God does it. The, the sun stops. Right? Right? The sun stops and that battle stretched on for hour after hour because Joshua asked God. God's work is done by means of His people's prayers often. Alright, keep moving through the narrative and you find David 
in the list I posted on the realm, I have like little references to where this stuff happens. Um, David's funny because a lot of his prayer life is captured in 1 Samuel 16 through 2 Samuel 7. Uh, but then I just put Psalms. Right? The, the Psalms, like a lot of them, are just the prayer life of David. Right? And, and David's prayer life almost seems audacious. Right? He's, he's so intimately relating to God. He's so honestly relating to God that he's leveling complaints, right? And he's, he's pleading with God, you promised, right? And, and please do it. And he's, and he's rallying his soul. He said, like in a, in a moment of what would have been despair, David is saying, I say to my soul, right? And he's, and he's, he's rallying his soul to praise God even in the valley. The, the, the life of David is a life of prayer. He's a praying man. The prayer that characterized David wasn't unique to him. We see one of the many sons of David, one of his lineage, Hezekiah, is told by God, by way of a prophet, you're about to die. You're going to die. Just, I want to let you know, this sickness is going to lead to your death. And you know what he does? He prays. He falls down on his face and he humbles himself and he prays. There's this really beautiful moment, one of many times in the Scripture where God responds almost in, in, in awe. Be, behold! <laughs> right? And he, and he gives grace. You take that moment in Hebrews, you can't please God unless you believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. You can take that in the negative and say, oh, well, I know that I will never please God if I don't do these things. But if you take that concept and you inverse it, you see, it makes sense of a lot of passages. How do you please God? You seek Him. And you believe that He will reward you for seeking Him. That's his, this is playing out in the history of Israel. What about Job? What about the prayer life of Job? Not only in a miraculous moment of faith does he bless God, though he's lost everything, but then he wrestles with God through his despair and through his grief. And it culminates in this expression of reflection on your majesty and your mystery. Right? Job is a praying man. And we can't forget Daniel. I think it's notable that Daniel's enemies, when they're looking for ways to ruin him, what they end up landing on, because they can't find any flaw in his character, is that this guy prays all the time. That's how, do, how do we ruin Daniel? We should forbid praying. Boy, to be that kind of prayer. To be that kind of guy who's characterized by patterns of prayer, right? 
but when it was forbidden, and when the lions were hungry and you could hear the growls of the lion, what is he doing? He's praying, never stops praying. He never stopped praying. The faithful prayed. They walked with God. And they spoke with Him. And when we get our first glimpse of the author of our faith, what, how is He notable? What was Jesus known for? There's a few right answers to this question. This guy can preach, right? This guy, he, he can tell demons to go away, and they go away. And, and, and when he lays his hands on people, or when he says you're he, they're healed, there's, this guy heals people, but notably, the Gospels call out how often he leaves to pray. People can't find, he's praying, Right? Mark tells us he woke up early, often, to pray. Mark 6, he leaves the crowds to pray. Luke 6, Luke tells us he prayed alone before making big decisions all night. Luke mentions twice he, he often left all the people to go to desolate places to be alone, to pray. Not only that, but, but here and in Luke, he's teaching his disciples how to pray, and then he models how to pray by inviting them to come to Gethsemane, right? Where he's falling on his face and pleading with God. So the ancient faithful prayed, the author of our faith prayed, and the redeemed faithful, they never stop praying. Acts 1, what, is, what, what happens as soon as Jesus leaves? He says, don't leave, don't, don't go away, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. What do you see them doing? Praying together. Praying. Waiting in prayer. And then the Spirit comes. The Spirit comes and falls. All of a sudden, the, 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 the fire of the Spirit just torches. Like thousands of people come to faith. And how are those thousands of people characterized? They pray. They pray. Acts 2, 42. They're praying people. So before the Spirit and after the Spirit. Before Jesus and after Jesus. The faithful of God are praying people. And then as you have the story of Scripture unfold, and you see Peter bringing the light of the Gospel to the Jews, what is Peter's life like? He's praying all the time. Right? He sees somebody who's sick, he prays. He sees somebody who dies, he prays. And when he's just sitting there waiting for dinner to cook, he's praying. Right? And then the narrative pivots to Paul, converted from the Pharisees. Paul, who was persecuting the Christians, is now 
life changed by a short conversation with Jesus. And what is his life like? He's praying. He's a praying man. What is He's in Antioch praying when the Spirit says, go send Paul on the mission. Right? And when Paul, right on the heels of, of, of being stoned, right on the heels of being beaten, is, is about to leave a place and he's laying hands on the elders of a church. And he's, what is he doing? He's praying. Paul's life is characterized by prayer, just like Jesus's. Right? So the, the whole story of Scripture from, from Genesis 1 or 2, actually, from Genesis 2 all the way to Revelation 22. It's a story of prayers. The Bible ends with the prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Okay, it's not merely that all of the faithful of the Scriptures are praying people. It's that you have, you have been explicitly invited to join them in the work of prayer. I'm going to read these to you. They'll be on the screen as well. Um, 2 Chronicles 7. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Psalm 51, give ear, I'm sorry, Psalm 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sounds of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. Right? This was a song given to the people of Israel to sing. Right? And immediately, consider my prayers, Lord. And then the next sentence, you hear my voice. Right? Rallying the people's confidence in prayer. All right, Jeremiah 29.11. The most popular passage in the prophets. Maybe the least understood. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil to give you a fortune and a hope. Then you will call upon Me and come and pray to Me and I will hear you. What is the hope of the exiled people of Israel? The hope is that they will pray to God and He will hear them. You will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So the law and the writings and the histories and the prophets are ushering the heart of the faithful to pray, and it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. Hebrews 4, one of the one of the sweetest invitations in the Scripture. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, if that's the case, if it is the case that we have a great high priest who understands us, and who sympathizes with our weaknesses, and who, who is just like us except without sin, if that's true, and it is, then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How do you apply the gospel to your life? You do it by praying. We have been invited to pray, and we are told to pray in every situation. I'm just going to blow through these guys. This is all of the commands. No, I'm sorry. This is some of the commands in Scripture to pray. Ephesians 6, in all, circum uh, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Could he have found another way to say pray? Did he just exhaust his entire tool belt to say pray, 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 pray? Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 4, 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I want to write a book. It's going to be called How to Fix Anxiety. And, and it's going to be like a 300-page volume, but they're all, going to be, they're all going to be empty pages, and it's just going to have one page that's just pray. Just pray. All right? It's going to be a big joke. Nobody's going to buy the book because it's too simple. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Colossians 4, continue steadfastly, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Keep watch in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, pray without ceasing, which is another way to say never stop praying. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 2 Thessalonians 1, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. What is the right thing to do? Always give thanks to God in prayer. Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. 1 Timothy 2, first of all then, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings Prayers, 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 prayers be made for all people, for all kings, and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, 
pray. First, pray. James 5. If you were worried that this wasn't comprehensive enough, is anyone of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders to the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Pray. So the Scriptures invite you to the throne of grace to pray. And the Scriptures tell you you should be praying all the time. And not only that, but we are taught how to pray in every situation. I'm not going to read these passages, but I have included these passages on the realm. I encourage you to read them. I love liturgy books. I think they're very helpful. Uh, We have a couple back there that are brilliant. Um, Every Moment Holy has been a huge help for me. Um, The Bible itself is a book on how to pray. The Bible is full of paradigm-shifting prayers, prayers that will teach you how to pray. We are taught how to pray when interceding for wicked people. We are taught how to pray when interceding for God's people. We're taught how to pray when giving thanks for prayers unanswered. I'm sorry, answered. When giving thanks for unexpected good gifts, we're taught how to pray. When asking for wisdom, we're taught how to pray. When praising God for salvation. When facing the wickedness of bad people. When desperate for deliverance. When facing the consequences of our personal sin, we're taught how to pray. When facing the sin of God's people when pleading for the rescue of the lost, when facing the sin of a nation, when reflecting on God's sovereignty, when praying for wisdom and hope, when thanking God for His people, when praying for missionaries, when praying for peace, when thanking God for a faithful brother or sister, when longing for the return of Jesus, the Bible teaches us how to pray. I put that list together with some really helpful resources. If you want to know more, I'd love to point you to some of these resources. But I put this list together, and I thought, boy, why did the disciples ask Jesus to help them know how to pray? Like, what? Had they not read the Bible? That was my first thought. But then, almost immediately, I thought, oh, you know, Jesus' primary characteristic the thing that he's most known for besides all the flashy stuff is that he's praying all the time. He's praying all the time. So it's not just that they don't really understand how to pray from the Scriptures, but they're going to the source. This guy knows how to pray better than anybody else I've ever heard of. So it's not crazy for them to say, teach us how to pray. We want to pray like you, Jesus. Okay, so you must pray. If you're a Christian, you call yourself a Christian, you must pray. You were created to pray, you are invited to pray, you've been taught to pray, and if you are faithful, you will pray. So let's talk about how you pray. 
how you pray. Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus presents to us two ways to pray. Two ways to pray. The wrong way is the first way he talks about. The wrong way to pray. He says there are people who love to stand and pray in the synagogues, in the streets. What does that mean? It means they're actively seeking opportunities to pray publicly. And not only are they actively seeking those opportunities, but we are told that their heart is craving the approval and praise of men. They pray in order to be seen. In order to be seen. And they get what they pay for. They have their reward. Man's attention. They're praying for man's attention. And they get man's attention. They're investing in the respect of men. And they get it. But that's all they get. That's the wrong way to pray. What's the right way to pray? Go into your room. Now let's talk about this. You probably have a room. Uh, the, the homes at the time Jesus was preaching weren't like ours. And while some people may have had their own room, this is actually a, a, a term associating, uh, is, we've, we've, we've interpreted it as your room, a, a closer uh, uh, meaning is probably like the storage closet. Every house had a room in the middle with a door that you could lock. Probably the only lock on any door in any house was the storage closet. Why? It wasn't hard. If you want to steal something from somebody, uh, it wasn't hard to get a tool and just dig out a hole in one of the walls in their house. So everyone had a storage closet where you put your valuables, the stuff that you wanted to lock away, and there would be a lock on that door of some sort. The thing about that place is you never expect to find a person there. Right? You never expect to find a person in the storage closet. Jesus says, go to the place where nobody is expecting to find you. And then he says, shut the door and lock it. See, that's the idea here. Go to the place where nobody expects to find you and and make sure that they can't find you. Right? Make yourself inaccessible. Jesus did this by going to desolate places. He didn't have a home. So he'd go to the wastelands where you couldn't find him. And he says, you you do that, and it'll be clear that you're not looking for man's attention. 
You go to a place where nobody expects to find you. You shut the door, lock it, and you start praying. It's pretty crystal clear you're seeking God's attention, not man's attention. And you know what? You'll find it. You'll find it. And before we shift to to look at what that looks like, finding God's attention, I think the implication here is that how you pray will teach you whose attention you crave. How you pray right now will teach you whose attention you crave. You're going to be one of these two types of prayers, right? Your prayer life is going to be either the wrong type of prayer life or the right type of prayer life. And, and that's how you, you trace that behavior back. You're going to see something in your heart. Either a delight in God's attention or a delight in man's attention. So if your prayer life consists primarily of public moments, your heart probably craves the attention of men. You're not alone. Don't despair. But it's time to start seeking God for change. Now, conversely, if your prayer life consists primarily of private moments in secret places, you can maybe be confident that your heart craves the attention of God. We're going to get into how to ask these questions here in a minute. But before we get into that, I want to read Jesus' words in 6, 6, in chapter 6, verse 6. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, I want to show you a shift that's taken place here. It's visible in English. You might have noticed it yourself. Look up in verse 4. Actually, verse 3. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Sees in secret. All right, skip down to verse 18. 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who's in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This interesting shift has taken place. You have in this first paragraph the Father who's just seeing in secret. But when... Christ shifts our attention to these these, uh, tools to seek His presence, these tools to draw near to Him. He says, your Father who's in the secret. He's not just seeing you. He's with you in the secret. The Father who's in the secret. In your secret seeking, He won't just see you. He won't 
merely hear you. He will be with you in your secret seeking. He's there with you in the secret place when you speak to Him secretly. He's hearing you and He's helping you there in the secret place. And then it says He will reward you. He sees and He will reward. I think the reward of the Father is actually couched in this paragraph. What is the reward of the Father in your seeking Him in prayer? His company? He is in the secret there with you? His attention? He's seeing you? Praying in the secret? And then His help, He rewards those who seek Him secretly. There's this like picture of a guy opposed to this public display, this, this reputation of piety, he, he goes and he locks himself in his storage closet. The word picture we've just been given is him taking his seat in this dark, stodgy, stodgy is probably not the word, stuffy closet room, and, and God's there with him. God's there with him. And he's seeing him and he's hearing him and he's rewarding him. That's the hope of secret prayer. So, simple passage. Simple passage. Your prayer life should not look like this guy's, all public, seeking man's attention. It should look like this guy's. He's going to a place where nobody's going to find him because he's Longing for the attention of God. Longing for the presence of God. Right? Simple passage. And against the backdrop of the entire Scripture's appeal to be a praying person, you should feel the weight of this call. You should feel the hope of this call. Okay, so here's some thoughts and some advice few thoughts and some advice. First, public versus private. This is, it gets tricky. It's not as simple, I don't think, especially in this culture, to do this type of private prayer life. So I think the first step for you to do what you've been told to do is to run an audit on your current prayer life. Think about how you pray and when you pray. Your public prayer life should be dwarfed by your private prayer life. I mean, like a 90-10% ratio, right? Your public prayer life should be tiny compared to your private prayer life. And it should be an overflow of your private prayer life. You know how this is the sharpness of this appeal has 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 hit me personally? Because when I tell people in the past I've I've had these moments of conviction where I realized I was telling people I'd pray for them, and then I would forget about it. And I wouldn't pray for them. And so I would ha- like 
I would try and force myself to like quickly pray for them. Right? That is an indictment not against my memory. It's an indictment against my private prayer life. If I am more inclined to tell somebody, oh man, I'm so sorry, brother, I'll, pr- I'll pray for you, than I am to pray for them on my knees in my closet, then I don't actually believe that God rewards those who seek Him. Your deficit of a private prayer life is an indictment of your faith. Right? You have Jesus when He's walking with His disciples always saying, oh you of little faith. What does that mean? It means like, if you're the kind of person who believes that God is and that He rewards those who seek Him and that He's going to do what He promised He was going to do and you're sitting in a ship with the King of Kings, you don't say, wake up Jesus, we're all about to die. Because that's Jesus there. Right? If you believe God is who He says He is and He's going to do what He says He does, what He says He's going to do, and He's going to reward those who seek Him, you pray. And if you don't pray, then maybe you don't believe those things. Alright, your public prayers... The, the ones that people can hear and see should be an overflow of worship and not an opportunity to be worshipped. Okay? Your private prayer life should be so robust that you just are on the edge of your seat to praise God for who He is and to appeal to God to help. And so when given an opportunity to join hands with brothers, it's just an overflow. Right? If your private prayer life is non-existent and you seek opportunities like that and you eloquently voice your high theology, this passage doesn't say much good about you. And you need to repent. Your public prayer life should be an expression of gratitude and not a felt obligation. If you hesitate to pray, you think it's awkward to pray in thanksgiving for God's good gifts? One, maybe you shouldn't be the one voicing those prayers on behalf of your family and friends. But two, you should really dive deep into the Scriptures and figure out what you believe about God and who He is and what He's done for you. Prayer should be an extension. Public prayer should be an extension of your care, not a facade of care. If you are band-aiding your lack of care with words like, brother, I'm praying for you, or brother, I will pray for you, if that's a band-aid so you can feel comfortable walking away from that situation, knowing that you're not going to do much to serve that person, don't say that anymore. If you are praying over someone who is sick or someone who is hurting, or if you are trying to comfort them by saying, brother, I've been praying for you, let it be an overflow of your care for them. And your prayer should be directed towards God, not people. We don't do prayers of teaching. It's not how prayer works. So if you find yourself standing in front of people and summarizing your Sunday school outline 
where you find yourself standing in front of people and, and highlighting the political circumstance of the day and the terms you'd like to um, dwell on, then, then I, I, I would suggest that maybe you're on the wrong side of this passage. Okay, so run an audit, evaluate. Second, your Father is there with you when you pray. Your Father is there with you. When you if you are seeking your Father in the secret places, He is there. Now this is a big deal. I don't know about you, but I have entertained the heresy of a distant God in my life. I have entertained the lie that God is out there somewhere and He might be hearing my prayers maybe. It's a lie and it has nothing to do with the God of the Scriptures. Which means that when you are on your knees in the secret place seeking God in prayer and you feel His distance, it's a feeling problem. It's not a distance problem. He is there with you, praise God. He is there with you. And your Father who's there, He sees you. You are known and understood in your secret prayers. They are heard and taken seriously. There is no rigid formality to the prayers of God's faithful people. They are raw and open. We do not hide our fear We do not hide even our unbelief in our moments of secret prayer. We find ourselves together with the desperate Father saying, I believe, help me in my unbelief. He sees you. He already knows you and He knows what you need. And He's met you there in the secret place. So be comforted. And your Father who's there and sees will reward your labors in prayer. Prayer is hard work. The Scriptures never shy from the labor of prayer. If you are a consistent prayer, you will find yourself thin emotionally. Lost, desperate, tired, angry. It's hard work. But the point of this chapter is that Every moment spent on your knees in the secret place is an investment in the coming kingdom. And there is no surer investment. So feel the appeal toward a life of private prayer and and go seek Him in the secret place. You will find Him if you seek Him. Amen? All right, let's pray together.